Thanks, guys. So it's the first Sunday of the month. So on the first Sunday of the month, I share my heart, soul, mind, and strength kind of areas of focus. Sometimes I call them goals. You don't always have to be goal-directed as a Christian. I know that can sound a little uh, type A. But what we do need need to be doing is bringing intentionality to our walk with Christ. And sometimes we just think that showing up to church, opening our Bible, and just kind of passively reading it. We're we're not bringing that prayer and that eagerness to all the disciplines of the Christian life. And so what I like to do every month is just kind of look at four dimensions of my life, heart, soul, mind, and strength, relationships, prayer and interiority, growing in biblical knowledge, and serving, and kind of uh, just invite God to say, hey, is there something you want me to be focused on? And I do that to grow myself to be a holistic disciple of Jesus. I don't want to just be following Jesus in these areas or in the disciplines or patterns or habits that just come naturally to me. Uh, I want to be stretching myself to grow in all areas so that my whole life is being conformed into his likeness and into his character. So this month, what I'm focusing on is uh, connecting and developing and deepening my relationship with Rick Penner, who's our incoming youth pastor. Uh, I do take his acceptance of the position as, as um, and he's asked me to kind of mentor him in the years ahead as he moves into full-time congregational ministry. And so we've started that relationship, obviously, but I want that to continue and deepen as he's here in September, and then we're emailing quite a bit and exchanging books and just kind of getting that mentorship ball rolling. The fall is also a time where it's very tempting for me to move into, there's lots of stuff to do, so let's get stuff done mode. So I'm really uh, trying to counter that with an emphasis on taking time to really commune with God times of stillness, extended prayer, extended study, uh, so that I don't uh, feed what can be a negative aspect of my let's get things done personality. So just making sure I'm intentionally slowing down to enjoy times with God. In the area of mind, I don't know if you guys saw the Nashville statement that came out this week. And uh, make a long story short, there was a statement that came out regarding a stance that evangelicals have, some evangelicals in the States have, regarding the LGBT community and just getting clarity on a biblical witness. And it's kind of stirred up the dust in terms of like, what does it mean to love your LGBTQ neighbor? Um, And all the complexities and nuances that come with that. And so that's been a real trigger for me to say, hey, this month I really want to keep going back into those issues and really parse that out and be reading some of the best information on that because I think that's a really important issue for us to get right. And uh, so that's something that I'm going to be diving into. And then our soccer team starts up. I don't mean our, I mean our, we do sponsor a church team, but I'm not the coach of the church team. I'm a coach of another team. And that starts up uh, this upcoming Saturday and it's just a, a month left in the season. But that, I love, love that out, outlet as a way to serve uh, the families and children in our community. And so I really want to make sure that these final four weeks are just great for the kids and the parents and that I just bring a little bit of extra um, energy and heart and, and just do a great job coaching. I think that's one way that we love our neighbor is by serving them on their terms, doing the best that we can and making this community a better place to live, a more attractive place to live. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to uh, move through a message that is very specifically designed for this Labor Day. Ten truths about work. And if 
Um, and by work, I mean that in a very broad sense. It could mean your studies in school. It could mean your volunteer work. But the labor that we do in life, um, with specific attention, yes, to our jobs. But I know there are different stages of life. Your job looks different. But that's what I want to do today. So let's, uh, let's pray. God, we want to engage your word with eagerness and through prayer. We want to be open to your word challenging us by our spirit. And on this Labor Day, when so many people really do struggle to connect their work to your mission in a meaningful way and often show up to work or show up to school or their studies with a very muted sense of purpose, I pray, God, that this message would be a rallying cry to their soul and it would, be, it would lead to a transformative vision for how to live out a Christian witness in and through their work. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. So we're going to move right into it. Labor Day, I like to do this every Labor Day, to pause for a moment no matter where we are in terms of our teaching series and say, your work matters to God. Your labor is important. And then after the sermon, just as a heads up, during our final song, I will be inviting people forward uh, to just receive a little anointing of just a little bit of oil on their forehead, symbolically uh, a blessing. God anoints his people for a purpose. And I do believe, and I hope you'll discover by the end of this message, that God, has, God wants to anoint and bless you to be a blessing in your workplace. Your work matters to God. And so I'll be inviting whoever would like to come forward during that final song to receive a blessing for their work or their studies or their efforts, um, regardless of where our labor takes us this year. So one truth that we all have to make sure we understand really well is that work is good. That's the first of 10 truths. We're going to move through this pretty quick. But these first three have, a, have to be teased out a little bit more because they're kind of the foundation for everything. Work is good. In Genesis 2.15, we read, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to take care of it. Even before there's a fall into sin, even before the world and all the systems of the world get corrupted due to sin, God establishes work. And actually, that's not the first place that we see work. The first place that we see work is in the beginning God created. God creates. He goes to work for six days, creating all that is. And the Hebrew word that is used in the Old Testament for ordinary human work, farming, the work of everyday life, is the same Hebrew word that is used in reference to God working for six days and then resting from his work. And so the first worker we see in the Bible is God, and then God gives before anything goes wrong, before the script gets distorted, God puts man and woman in the garden and says, get to work. Creation, wasn't, creation was very, very good, but it wasn't perfected in the sense that it had all the potential taken out of it that it could have. There's a huge potentiality embedded into creation, and God says, part of your calling as an image bearer is to go into all the dimensions of life and to cultivate, to culture the potential of creation. Use your creativity, use your wisdom, use your strength, use your ingenuity individually and together to bring out the goodness that is in this world. Notice also the first job God gives anybody is the job of a gardener or a farmer. It's not a pastor, it's not a missionary. It's a blue-collar, salt-of-the-earth, get-your-hands-dirty job. There's no dualism here because many ancient cultures saw either 
all work as a form of slavery that was a punishment from the gods, or certainly manual labor, work of the body, was diminished work. It was, that was a kind of slavery. If you could work on, if you could do the work of the mind, philosophy, let's say, that was a noble, dignifying work. But, you know, the farming, cultivating, get your hands dirty, blue collar stuff, what, what we might think of as regular work, uh, that's, a, um, that's a real demotion of your human dignity to participate in that. And the biblical story just completely flips that script on its head and says, no, the first dignified, God-ordained um, job that is given in Scripture is a gardener, is a farmer, someone who has to get into the, the, the water and the, and the dirt and the realness of creation and cultivate it. So work isn't something that is introduced in the biblical story after sin. It's not a result of the curse of sin. It's a part of God's good creation. We are meant to work as image bearers, and we know this from studies. If people don't have meaningful work, and again, I'm using work in a broad sense here of labor, we just tend to disintegrate psychologically, relationally, socially, and the Bible would also say spiritually. We need work. We are made for work because work is really, really good. Work is in, has inherent dignity because work is given by God. Now, work is good, but you're like, Jeff, that is not my experience of work. I wish work was good. I wish it was that meaningful all the time. I wish it was that kind of, I wish I could have kind of that uh, big picture, wow, deep meaning and purpose, and God has made me for this. But the reality is I experience work to be very, very hard and difficult and challenging and draining I find school and my studies to be hard and difficult and challenging and draining. I find the labor that I do, whether in a volunteer capacity or the work that I do for my family, to be hard and difficult and challenging. And that is because, number two, work is also cursed. As the story of Scripture continues in Genesis 3, with the fall, with the introduction of human sin that colors everything negatively, God says to Adam, because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. And so the scripture says, because of sin... Although our work is good, it's now also corrupted and difficult and challenging. There's now a burden. Crops don't just yield themselves. The ground is cursed, and that should be understood in every sphere. Homemaking is cursed. Raising children doesn't just happen naturally and easily. Uh, Figuring out financial systems that are integrous and that lead to flourishing, those numbers and lines don't just... Uh, come together, right? In spite of what Trudeau says, you know, budgets don't balance themselves. These things have to take a huge amount of work and careful thought. Preparing us from preparing a sermon to creating a meal to serving in whatever capacity, we recognize that it often feels like we're going against the grain. Studying is hard. Doing homework is hard. And that is because our work 
is cursed because of our sin. But this is where the third truth is really, really important to understand, and that is work is being redeemed. The work and labor of our hands and our minds is being redeemed. The resurrection has way more implications for life than I think most of us associate with it. When we celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection, it's often through an individual lens. Through his death, my sins can be forgiven. By his resurrection, I am justified. We just talked about that. I am now secure and sealed in him. My sins have been uh, cast away. And now I'm now invited into, um, I now have my eternal destiny secured for heaven and for the life of the age to come. That is absolutely true. But the implications of that are also that now I am being saved from a life of futility into a life of service and purpose, which includes the work that God has called me to here and now. See, one of the themes that the New Testament uh, emphasizes again and again is the theme of Christ's resurrection has now inaugurated, it started new creation. Life of the age to come hasn't happened fully, hasn't been fully established yet, but there's kind of seeds of it now. And we're to cultivate those seeds of it because God is not content with letting, letting the status quo of things are good, but things are corrupted by sin. Oh, well, I guess we'll just stay in that cycle of goodness and futility forever. God says, no, I'm bringing an end to the power and the curse of sin. And in the resurrection, God is declaring that he is undoing the curse of sin and that God is setting the world right. But God is undoing the curse of sin in all things, and God is setting the world right in all dimensions, not just in what we might think of as the spiritual parts of life, but all of life. It is not coincidental that when Mary meets Jesus post-resurrection, she mistakes him to be a gardener, right? In Gospel of John, thinking that he was the gardener, she said to him, where have you taken his body? And that's a throwback to Genesis 1 and 2, And it's a very intentional biblical illusion that in Christ we are now to be renewed gardeners, renewed people with a renewed purpose who are walking into newness of life and learning to labor for God, not just in spiritual ways. And I'm using air quotes there because the Bible doesn't talk about spiritual things as a certain category of thing. And we'll get to that in a second. It talks about moving into life with a disposition to honor God. So work is being redeemed. The gospel gives you a whole new story for your work. We all operate with a story of work, whether the overarching story is work is brutal and always will be, um, or work is futile, or work is just a means to an end. I just use it to get a paycheck to be able to do the things that are really meaningful for me in life. But Timothy Keller writes this in his book, Every Good Endeavor, which is a great um, continued study on this whole theme of connecting your work to God's work. He says, the gospel is the true story that God made a good world that was marred by sin and evil, but through Jesus Christ, he's redeemed it at infinite cost to himself so that someday he will renew all creation and all suffering and death and restore absolute peace, justice, joy in the world forever. And the implications of this gospel worldview about the character of God, the goodness of material creation, the value of human persons, the fallenness of all people, but the primacy of love and grace, the importance of justice and truth, of hope and redemption, that affects everything, especially our work. The gospel isn't simply something that informs a private part of our life or a fragmented, cornered element of our personhood. It is something that holds implication for every dimension of our life. 
That's why Paul in the New Testament will use language like work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's not meaning in order to be saved, you have to do works. He's saying you have to work out the implications of what God has done through Christ, through his incarnation, atoning death, and resurrection. You have to work that. What does that mean for me as a husband, as a homemaker, as a IT professional, as an engineer, as a teacher, as a volunteer in this capacity, as a student? See, in a dualistic worldview, meaning dual, split between sacred and secular, first class, second class, there are only certain kinds of work that really matter. And those different worldviews have a slight variation of those, but there's even, that worldview can exist within Christian subculture, where we say, well, these kinds of work matter. Studying towards these career ends, that's really noble in the eyes of God, but to these ends... I mean, it's good, I guess, but it's clearly kind of, you get the inference, it's kind of second tier. And Christianity just should, I think a a proper understanding of the biblical witness should completely undermine that view. That all efforts to culture creation, whether that's through the preparation of a sermon or the preparation of a meal, are meant to bring honor and glory to God and can be places of tremendous dignity See, in the Bible, the value of our work is rarely tied to what we're actually doing, but to whom and how we're doing it, right? I could stand up here as a pastor and execute my job in a way that was totally self-centered. I could preach in a way that is motivated by people being impressed or getting approval from people or what have you, right? I could operate through the week in a manner that is completely Uh, self-conscious with myself at the center and completely devoid of God consciousness at all, seeking to honor God. And to that end, if I was to move in that direction, my job doesn't make my efforts somehow sanctified or good. What makes my job, quote-unquote, spiritual or honoring to God is how I do it. And so therefore, the entrepreneur who has a small business and is working out how does the gospel inform how I serve my customers, make the best products, you fill in the blank, that person is more honoring to God and I believe will be used of God more powerfully than a pastor if that person is not operating with a heart to honor God and to love their neighbor. So what we do in terms of a title is much less important to God than to whom we're doing it and how we're doing it. Our work, our studies should become conduits through which we bring light to darkness, order from chaos, healing from pain, innovation from stagnation, truth from falsehood. See, as the church, see, and this makes sense because um, there's a reason why when you were saved, when you turned your life over to Jesus, you didn't get teleported up to heaven. Notice that didn't happen? Why not? Because you are not saved from this world, you are saved for this world. So God wants to use you individually and you all as a community and use us, not just on Sundays, not just on Bible study nights, not just on uh, Christian service projects, but 24-7, seven days a week in all the areas that we are laboring to bring glory to himself and to be agents and ambassadors of his love and grace in the world. I I know that's a big calling, but that is what the resurrection calls us into. 
That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.20, you were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. Now he's saying that in the context of sexual immorality in the church, so there's a direct application. But the concentric circle of application is your body is no longer your own. So therefore, um, in all the ways you use your body, honor, seek what it means to honor God. Surely, honoring God with your body has implications for your workplace, your sphere of labor. So the rest of these reflections are really built on those three worldview foundations, that work is good, work is corrupted, but work is being redeemed. So number four, work is worship. Work is meant to be an offering to God. Proverbs 16.3 says, commit your work or your studies to the Lord, and then your plans will succeed. The Bible presumes at the start of every workday, every major project, your life, your studies, you're saying, God, I give this over to you. I want to honor you. I know this is going to be hard. There's going to be some, uh, some lots of good come out of this, but there's going to be resistance and, and hardship along the way, but I, I want to commit this to you. Colossians 3.23 says, whatever you do, it doesn't say whatever you do within the church or whatever you do in quote-unquote ministry, whatever you do, Work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. You enter into your studies, you enter into your workplace, your volunteer opportunities, your homemaking, whatever sphere of responsibility you have, you enter into it with an attitude that says, how do I do these things in a way that as if I was working for the Lord, as if he was my ultimate employer? Because he is, that, that's part of what you're claiming when you say things like, Jesus is my Lord. What you're saying is he is Lord over my work life. Now, again, I want to tease out that doesn't mean you're always talking about Jesus all the time at work or uh, forcing conversations about Jesus. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a disposition of the heart where you show up in your workplace to honor God. Number five, work is ministry slash mission. This is really important. Your studies, your work is supposed to be an arena of mission. It's not something that interrupts real mission or that simply you do so that you can make enough money to tithe so that the church and, and professional Christians can do mission and do ministry. Your workplace is a ministry environment. If you do it unto God, it is ministry. That's why I sometimes, that's why you'll notice we, if you replay the tape in your head, I use language like Rick is, tr- is transitioning into full-time congregational ministry. I don't say he's transitioning into ministry because he was already doing ministry as a pilot. He's doing congregational ministry now, which is different than ministry as a pilot, but we're all doing ministry. That should be our attitude. As an entrepreneur, uh, someone who's pumping gas, someone who's preparing this for a customer, repairing a car, that is ministry. That's a tangible way through which we offer worship to God, and we shouldn't see what we're doing as just putting in time until we get to things that really count for God. The things that count for God are anything that is given over to God and committed to God. That's what God receives. Anything, even our meager, maybe from our perspective, doesn't really seem like it would make much of a difference. When that's committed to God, God receives it and is pleased with it and will bless it. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now again, concentric circles. What do we mean by the work of the Lord? Does that only mean work done under an official church context? 
Is it only ever mean, you know, depending on how you interpret that verse, you might have a very small theology of work. I interpret that quite uh, massively because I think Paul is speaking to their whole life. All the labor that you do, give yourself to the work of the Lord because all the labor that you do in God actually really matters. Your labor isn't in vain. He doesn't say only the spiritual stuff matters, but this other labor, like, yeah, that's, we're pretty much just um, circling the drain with that one. That, that, that's, it's all going to burn up. It's not going to matter. He says, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And I choose to interpret that in a pretty broad context with implications for our spheres of responsibility. Number six, work is a vehicle through which to serve, not be served. Jesus said, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And one of the most powerful, I might even argue, the most important way that you can be a genuine witness and you can share and, and create opportunities to share the gospel as you build relationships with people that you work with or people that you serve through work is to serve people through your work. To not see your work as a means to your own end and your own self-satisfaction. But um, someone once told me when I started working at Pizza Hut, when I was 17 or 18, they said, make sure you do something every single shift that makes the life of someone else in that do something every shift that isn't part of your job that makes someone else's life easier that you work with. And I remember that. That was a practical implication, application that someone challenged me. What does it mean for me to be a Christian who makes pizzas at Pizza Hut? They said, one of the things is, do find something. So what I would do is, I knew there were certain people who didn't like to do certain things. And I said, hey, I I don't mind doing that for you. They're like, oh man, are you serious? That's great. That was a small way that I served. I looked for opportunities to serve. I didn't just show up and say, what's the minimum I have to do today to get my paycheck? And that, that's that person's job. And I don't have to do that. That's not my job description. And just retrench into selfishness. Our jobs are an important vehicle through which we're called to serve and not be served. We work for God's glory, not our own ends. And so what follows from that is number seven, work is an unparalleled opportunity to love your neighbor. by providing quality service, by having an attitude that is positive and hopeful and upbeat, by going the extra mile, by working with integrity, by seeking to serve. These are really tangible ways that we can love our neighbor. And they get even more magnified often in work contexts where people are often coming into that context just trying to think through, well, what's the minimum that I need to do today? Or they're just seeing work as a means to an end. And if you move into that narrative and disrupt it by showing love and care and concern, it is a powerful witness to God's love. I mean, it really is. It's very, very powerful. Whether we're working directly with people or the jobs that we do indirectly impact people, we love our neighbors through our work. And that's number eight. Work is worship. Loving your neighbors will be defined by certain characteristics. It doesn't mean showing up and trying to shove Jesus down people's throat or you know, leaving your Bible on your desk. Oh, what are you reading? Oh, I'm just reading this. Uh, it's not being fake or inauthentic. Most workplaces aren't even going to allow that kind of engagement to, um, in a well-intended sense, just try and create a neutral, secular environment. So, so 98% of the time, probably, how we witness for Christ in the workplace is by modeling excellence, integrity, discipline, creativity, and compassion. Compassion for our coworkers and customers and those we engage with, and also passion for the job. You show up for your job, 
compassionately, seeking to care for people, doing the best job that you can, being in integral. Your yes means yes and your no means no. And you're disciplined. And you're creative. You're not just doing a job. You're always thinking, how, do I, how can I make this better for people around me? There's an innovative spirit. And I think those things held together are a genuine Christian Protestant work ethic. We tend to associate the Protestant work ethic with just working super hard. But I have worked with Christians who work super hard and are super miserable and are not a witness to Jesus. Because all they've been taught is if you just work super hard for God, God will honor it. Meanwhile, they're miserable, they're cranky, they're short-tempered, they are putting their heads down and going to work and they're not looking for opportunities to bless their coworkers. That is not a good witness for Jesus. A witness for Jesus in the workplace, in these spheres of responsibilities, at school, you do the best job you can. Martin Luther said, a Christian shoemaker doesn't bring glory to God by putting little crosses on shoes. He brings glory to God by making great shoes. Integrity, discipline, creativity, and compassion. We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Again, what is good works referring to? Just work that is done under the umbrella of a church program? I think it includes that. But I think good works is the work that we do that is genuinely good because it's honoring to God and it serves our neighbor. And if you separate your workplace from this call to do good works, you have undercut a massive part of your life that God could use in a powerful way. And you've just sidelined your workplace to be, in a sense, spiritually treading water when it could be pulled into a larger story with deeper meaning and a way more massive impact. If your understanding of your schoolwork is just, this is stuff I have to do in order to go on to the next grade, to just do more of the stuff that I have to do to go, if it's just a, a progress, then it will drain you of life. If you understand the homework that you're doing, the assignments that you're doing is, this is God forming me for a purpose that I don't know yet, but I'm going to honor God by working hard here because he is setting me up for a larger purpose later on. He's cultivating through these disciplines capacities and potential in me. Number nine, don't want to let the strong work ethic off the hook. A strong work ethic is commensurate with a serious commitment to Christ. Ephesians 6.6, 6, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. He says, work hard, but not just to please your masters when they're watching. Don't just simply be opportunistic in your hard work and in your fervor, right? As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart, Work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. So we are called to work hard, to prepare well, to execute well, whether we're teaching Sunday school, whether we're preparing to lead worship, whether we are doing laundry, whether we are organizing spreadsheets, whether we are training a team. We're to work hard, we're to do our best. We're to be people that other people look at and say they have a really distinctive kind of work ethic, not just because they work hard, but they do work hard, but they work in a way that it feels like they really think this job matters. I don't really think this job matters, but they seem to work as if it does. And that rubs off on people. That's enticing to people. People today, more than ever, are looking to connect their work with a transcendent purpose, and I'm, I, I'm just not convinced there's any other worldview outside of Christianity that can do that in a way that is really integrative and holistic and compelling. Listen to these words from 2 Thessalonians. This is, this is harsh, but this is important to, to hear. 
in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer, so keep away from other Christians who are idle. They're just kind of slothful. They don't really give themselves to any meaningful work. And disruptive, and they don't live according to the teaching you received from, from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. And he said, we did this, not because we did not have the right to such help. He said, he wrote in other letters, if someone preaches the word of God, a full-time ministry, you can support that person financially. He said, I could have said, you should be supporting me. But I did this in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work should not eat. And we hear that some among you are idle and they're disruptive. And they're not busy, but they're busy bodies. And the word there in Greek is a word that basically means someone who has just got caught up in the um, affairs of other people. I was listening to, to one sermon actually on this and the preacher, uh, I thought it was a f- good observation. He said, part of why God has given you work is to keep you out of other people's business. Your work is a gift to other people. <laughs> so they don't have to spend all their time around you and that you don't get caught into the trap of idleness and then maybe gossip and then being a busybody and meddling in other people's lives. You have a job to do, you do a job. And when we don't have stuff to do, again, we tend to disintegrate. And so he continues, such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ, settle down, earn the food you eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Underline and make note of people whose disposition is, eh. And maybe even for people who baptize that attitude, with very spiritual-sounding language. Oh, I trust God will provide. So I'll baptize my own sloth with that language. So it sounds Christian. And people are like, kind of like, oh, I guess, is that a person of faith? Paul says, that's not a person of faith. Martin Luther said, you work as if everything depended on you. You pray as if everything depended on God. That's kind of getting that good, healthy tension point. And then Paul says about these people who are idle, these Christians, not people, this is specifically about Christians, don't associate with them in order that they might feel ashamed. That's harsh. There's not many times in the New Testament where Paul is actually inviting people to be publicly shamed. One of the places is people who aren't hard, diligent workers and just kind of are floating through life expecting other people to provide for them and not getting busy. And whatever their capacity, it might be a small capacity, but are trying to labor in a way that brings honor to God and serves his purposes in the world through their work. And that means a lazy, self-indulgent, do the minimum possible amount disposition towards our work is antichrist. And biblically, it's shameful. So we do need to be people that work hard at what we do. But number 10, we're talking a lot about work, and the Bible speaks almost just as much about rest. Work is your calling, but it is not your identity. Your identity is in Christ. That's why all throughout the scripture, God is always commanding his people to stop working. Work is good, but we're not made for work. We're made for worship. And one of the ways we worship is through work, but another big way that we worship is through play 
and recreation and stepping outside of work and discovering how to enjoy God and to serve God and to serve our neighbor outside of work capacities. And this was important for the Israelites because for 400 years they had been enslaved and their identity was as slaves, as workers. And God said, no, I'm going to redeem you from that and you're still going to work. For six days you will labor, but you will keep a Sabbath day rest for the Lord. And part of that was so that they would be reminded that fundamentally they are not slaves. They are not meant to simply just work themselves to the bone. God has given us work to be countered with rest for a full life. If you just work all the time, God says you'll actually move into dehumanization. It's inhuman to expect yourself or another person to be working all the time. So God in Leviticus 35 says, if you don't honor my command to rest, you'll be put to death. Right? That, that would be an equivalent of us saying, um, I mean, this is a strong hand, so you know, take it on, on advisement, SLT. But it would be like the SLT saying to me, you have four weeks of vacation. If you don't take those vacations, you'll be put to death. Because it's so critical, Jeff, that you don't work all the time. That you recognize that your labor in the Lord is important, but so is rest in the Lord. So that we are constantly recalibrating our heart, soul, mind, and strength to God outside of always producing. Our identity is more than just producing things for God. We matter to God just because he loves us. But because he loves us and has made us for a purpose, he also calls us to work. So it's kind of getting that balance right. And then bonus, I'll give you one more. You're like, Jeff, does it really have to end here? No, it doesn't. One more. (laughs) One more. Your work, your studies, your labor can have and can hold an eternal weight of glory. They actually can really matter, not just in this life, but out into eternity. In Revelation 21, you see this picture, this final consummation, heaven and earth become one, sin is stripped away, the glory of God is no longer contained within a temple, the world, the universe, the cosmos is now the temple of God. It's unrestrained glory. And in verse uh, 24, when, this, when John has his vision for this new Jerusalem, this new city, it says, the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On, on no date, On no day will the gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into it. Things that have been done, that have been created in every sphere of human endeavor. I mean, we don't understand all the mechanics of how this is going to work, but I think it's so cool that God says, when I come and renew creation, I'm not just drawing a line on the sand and saying, all this stuff from the previous age, garbage, useless, irredeemable. I was just kind of using it as busy work for you guys. God says, that beautiful. That strategy of parenting, beautiful. That way of engaging um, people, beautiful. That way of designing cities, beautiful. That uh, innovation, that idea, that way of expressing things, that way of moving, that way of serving, beautiful. I want it to continue. That was part of the work that I was doing in the previous age, and now in the age to come forever, We're going to continue to do work. We're going to continue to cultivate the potential of the universe. It's a big universe. A lot of cultivation to do forever, but now we get to do it outside of the bounds and the restraints of sin and with the glory of God fueling us. So it's a meaningful, purposeful future. Heaven isn't sitting on clouds and playing music. That's such a muted, unbiblical, foolish conception. New creation is life with God 
together, worshiping through our work, through recreation, or new heavens and new earth. All the best parts of this world, cleansed from sin, enhanced by the glory of God, continuing out forever and ever and ever. And I think continuing to cultivate the embedded glory in God's creation. And so with that vision, may you know that your work matters to God, your studies matter to God, your labor matters to God. Work done in Christ for Christ really does matter forever, both to God and to your fellow human beings. And so let's get to work. Let's pray. God, may we 